I have got a scenario for you. All right. You're coming back from a fancy work dinner wearing your nicest outfit. You know, the one that doesn't have any cat hair on it. Okay. None of my outfits don't <laughs> okay. have any cat hair on it. It's a scenario. And on your way back home, you come across a child drowning in a pond shouting for help. You know you can save this child without any real risk to your own safety, but you're going to ruin your outfit. Do you save the child? Well, obviously. You have to know, I don't, I don't care about my clothes that much at all. So, <laughs> And that's what 99% of people would say. But effective altruist Peter Singer likes to use this example to point out that while there probably isn't a child drowning in front of you at this very moment, functionally, you're in exactly this situation. In 2019, for example, an estimated 5.2 million children under five years old died from mostly preventable and treatable causes. The vast majority of these are things that could be dealt with with minimal financial imposition on people living in the developed world. Things like pneumonia, diarrhea, malaria, etc. So I know you're a big fan of the nail polish, Kelly, and according to your Instagram, have quite the collection. Maybe if you sold a couple of those bottles, you could save some children. And now we're starting to get into an area where I'm a little unsure of my willingness to, you know, be a savior of all children kind. <laughs> that kid's going to drown. Sorry. Maybe. Sorry. Extra, extra, read all about it. Podcast tackles controversies that define your On today's episode of Indubitably, we are going to discuss effective altruism. And to help us with that discussion, we are joined by Emily. Emily, welcome to the show. Hello. Emily, I've known you for a very long time. And some of the concepts that we're going to be talking about today, I first heard about from you. What is your experience on this topic? And what is your interest in the subject of effective altruism? Um, I first heard about effective altruism through the rationalist community online that organized around sites like Less Wrong and Slate Star Codex. I like to consider myself a rationalist, not in the sense that I am a person who is rational, but in the sense that I like to cultivate rationality and clear thinking and clear ideas uh, about the world and about my life. And that's generally the desire of many rationalists. And effective altruism is more or less an outgrowth of, of a lot of the people who are involved in, in that movement. Well, we thank you for joining us today and look forward to being very effectively schooled on your knowledge of effective altruism. I would not represent myself as an expert, just an interested party. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Well, for those of us with even less expertise, why don't we start with the definition? What is effective altruism? And I think broadly, this effective altruist movement has two components. One would be encouraging individuals in the rich world to donate more. And two would be encouraging us to donate more rationally to the organizations most efficient at translating those donations into gains in human well-being. Give more, give efficiently. Why don't we start with give efficiently? I think at face value, it's probably the more provocative conversation. And it almost seems like the end conclusion here is that if you donate to certain charities or causes that aren't operating efficiently, you're really not doing much. You're not accomplishing much. At a certain point, 
if you're donating money so that an opera house can buy a new bench outside with your name on it, it seems like you might as well just go and buy yourself a jet ski. <laughs> we can take, for example, different ways that we can help people who experience sight loss. For instance, we could help fund a seeing eye dog, which costs about forty-five to $60,000 to train, or we could work to eradicate trachoma, which is a contagious bacterial infection, which causes blindness, but takes only a simple surgery to correct, which is, you know, usually about 15 to $50 per eye. And if you boil that down to the actual numbers, there could be 900 cases of blindness cured for the cost of one seeing eye dog. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is the kind of thought process that effective altruism advocates as it attempts to according to its own page, quote, use evidence and reason to figure out how to benefit others as much as possible and take action on that basis. I think I part ways with effective altruism a little bit on this point because there are different kinds of obligations that we have to different people. And there are different functions that altruism can serve, like it can serve as a form of community building and organization, for example. If you look at the example of providing a seeing eye dog to a person, isn't necessarily uh, purely about restoring vision to one human being, um, but might fall under the same umbrella as something like the ADA, where it's about facilitating equal access to our society. And one could argue that we have a higher obligation, a reciprocal Republican kind of obligation to fellow citizens to facilitate their access to civil society more so than we do just to prevent blindness per se. What if it's purely the case of scale? What if it's a like for like type of remedy for a situation and it literally comes down to being able to do more for some people than you could with the same amount of money for another similar effect, but more expensive remedy? Obviously, this is a difference in curing and accessibility, but what if it was purely about curing blindness? And in some cases, there are more expensive cures for blindness, more expensive surgical interventions. Would they say that then you should only do the ones that are less expensive because you can do more of them if it means that you, if you have limited funds, right? You can only spend $30,000 on surgery. And that could be one person getting their vision restored or, you know, a few hundred people getting their, their vision restored. What would effective altruism say in that instance? I think in that case, it's more clear cut to say that, that you should prefer the cheaper form of surgery. And the argument that, that an effective altruist would probably make if you said that that would be unfair or cruel to the person who required the more expensive surgery is that you're forced in a world of limited resources, you're forced to make that choice one way or another. So you're not going to magic 30,000 more dollars out of the air to pay for both the cheap and the expensive surgeries. So you might as well choose the one that the, the trolley car is barreling down the track. You might as well choose the one that does the most good for the greatest number of people. Right. I think there's two presuppositions that effective altruism makes. One, it does understand the limitations of the amount of donations, whether it's money or time that we have. And that's probably why the first half of it is trying to incentivize people to donate more, which we'll talk about in the second half of the episode. But no matter how much people donate, likely there's still going to be issues that we have to deal with, with limited funds. And so the more efficiently we can do that, the more people's lives we're going to improve. I think the second presupposition kind of deals with what you mentioned directly, Emily, which is a lot of people, the majority of people prioritize charity work or donations to people that they share a bond with. And so effective altruism 
does sort of level the playing field and assume every human life in every place should be treated equally, ignoring any kind of relations or connections that people might share. I think that's right. Uh, I tend to agree that we should proceed in the world as if every human life was worth the same amount, but that doesn't mean that we can't acknowledge that people have different relationships with each other and different kinds of reciprocal obligations to each other. If you as a parent decide that your child's life is not any more valuable than someone living in famine conditions and you give away all of the money that you would use to feed your child, we're going to call Child Protective Services on you. Because that's a kind of relationship in which parents are expected to provide for their own children first, uh, put your mask on first kind of situation like in an airplane, and then take care of others. That doesn't mean that you have to, you know, lavish spending upon your child as opposed to giving money to someone in need, but it doesn't mean you have to do the bare minimum to protect the people who are in your charge or you have a special relationship with. So I would say the biggest problem is not effective altruism, not having space for those kinds of reciprocal moral obligations, but that most people act as if people living in foreign countries, people they've never met, people who don't look like them, are not half as valuable as their children or their family or their neighbors, but they're a tiny fraction as valuable. So through their behavior, they're choosing to save, you know, one person's life who's like them versus a thousand pers- people's lives who, who are not like them. And I think that's something that we should address with this idea of the fundamental equality of people. Mm-hmm. And I think to use the example that Kelly brought up, the question then would be, if you have a blind child, do you spend $45,000 training a dog to serve as their seeing eye dog? Or do you cure 900 children you've never met of that condition? Effective altruism would suggest the latter. Then what do you do for your own child? You hold their hand. (laughs) Hold their hand forever. Okay. That's not infantilizing or unsustainable. I think that's a case in which we have a, a moral obligation to the people that we are citizens with, parents of, responsible for. I think it's reasonable to say that it's my obligation to make sure that my child has access to a free and independent life and can can live their own life according to their own desires. But then that does cr- tend to crowd out some of the claims that effective altruism is trying to make. I think that makes a lot of sense at first glance. Obviously, parents have obligations to their children. There are relational or reciprocal obligations that exist in the world, but the question is, how far out do we expand those circles? Because I think if we take it too far, it can have harmful implications just in terms of how one group of people, probably a privileged group of people, let's say Americans or Europeans, as an example, would interact with another less privileged group of people, say refugees from Northern Africa or the Middle East, who are not in their, quote, relational or reciprocal circles. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up Europe because that is a society, a culture that typically does have a lot more of like community-based care for one another and taking care of people in their country in a way that Americans don't. But they don't extend that same sort of sympathy and benevolence to people like refugees from, say, Syria. So even though they're physically on the land and could be considered part of the community, there are differences that justify different treatment because people define their own communities using factors such as how related we are, how much we look like each other, things like that. Mm -hmm. And I think we mentioned before, 
in effective altruism, there's a presupposition that a life is equal to another life and suffering is equal to other suffering across the board. It doesn't matter what continent you're born on. It doesn't matter who you're related to. You know, everybody comes into this world with equal value. And we should keep that in mind as we make decisions on on who we should help. And certainly this idea of obligation to people that are more similar to us rejects what seems pretty fair at face value, that we're all equal. I suppose it's the same sort of idea of, I only have so many resources, so I have to choose where I'm going to put them. And perhaps if I put them towards a community that is in some way related to me or has some interaction with my life, then that provision of resources will eventually circulate back to me in some regard as well, which, you know, defeats the purpose of altruism. You don't do it for your own benefit. Yeah, exactly. I think one of the arguments that's made a lot is that, well, citizens have paid into the system, say something like, where do we give healthcare or where do we give welfare? Where do we give medical assistance to? The people who have paid into the system through tax dollars, well, they should get it first. And it's exactly that. Well, because their tax dollars are going to help me. So in return, I'm going to help them. By definition, that's not altruism. But I think it's natural. I think that is the impulse that we have as humans is to create community, define community, and then support and protect that community because there's a mutual interest in it. Mm -hmm. It's natural, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily right. And, you know, we're using an example here of your child versus kids you've never met. Maybe a more realistic example would be donating to a charity whose cause you might be sympathetic towards versus doing the research to try and find charities who will be using the resources you're giving in a way that will provide maximum utility as everyone involved tries to alleviate the suffering that exists in this world. Yeah, there's that as well. There's sites like Charity Navigator that are attempting to find the charities that spend their money the most effectively, that have the highest pass-through rate, that deploy the most effective services. And um, that can be a positive step for some people who give out of a sense of obligation, but without really looking at what they're doing. Considering what you're donating to can also be helpful. For example, a really a really good example and a very simple example is people like to donate to the Red Cross in times of disaster. So when there's a really high profile disaster, like the earthquake in Haiti a few years ago, or like the tsunami in Indonesia in the 2000s, I think it was 2010, people give huge amounts of money to the Red Cross. And that can be helpful, but very often they're giving targeted donations for disaster relief to those areas. And untargeted general donations to the Red Cross can fund programs for decades But a targeted donation to disaster relief in Indonesia might get swamped out by the number of people who are wanting to give and who are wanting to help. So small changes like that can greatly improve the effectiveness as well uh, of the money that you're willing to give. A lot of people, though, it seems like donation and charity is not at the front of mind unless there is something like that that comes up, which is unfortunate. But I think that's one of the reasons that people prioritize donations and support in their own communities first is because they can actually see the effects of it, that they see the effects when they don't donate and they can see what improvements actually come from it. And there is a certain object permanence of our immediate community that makes it the most obvious when they need help in a way that it's not perpetually obvious that things that are happening around the world 
are long, arduous issues that require constant attention to resolve. We just don't have eyes on those situations. I think that the issue here is people waiting for causes to come to them. The causes that are getting the media attention, the celebrity backing, the rock concerts, you know, the hot button political issues that parties or groups rally around and push to the front of our discourse. I think effective altruism asks people to do a little work and be proactive, seeking out the causes and populations that A, require the most help, and B, where we have the most capacity to provide that help. And I think this is especially true if you're part of a specific demographic. Of course, if you are affected personally by an issue or identify personally with the people who are, it's going to take up potentially a disproportionate amount of real estate in terms of what you see or identify as major problems in the world. Then as a byproduct of that, you can easily end up allocating disproportionate resources to it, not just time or money, but also just attention or empathy. A reason for that, I think, is that people cannot stomach being that exposed to traumas that are happening around the world constantly to actively seek out what is wrong and what I can do about it. And then it only becomes obvious that there's an issue when it gets basically shoved into their face. There is a real psychological effect of being the kind of person who's constantly aware of what traumas there are and how to potentially resolve them. And that is compassion fatigue, where essentially the onus for resolving all of these issues takes on a personal component and the people who are working to help resolve the issues become connected to the issues in a way, even if they're not directly affected by the issues, connected to them in a way that drains them emotionally and makes them feel the same smidgen of the traumas that they're trying to alleviate. And it can become something that causes charity burnout. Uh, volunteer burnout, and just the overall fatigue, the psychological breakdown that people experience by constantly being exposed to traumas when they're trying to fix them is very hard to endure for a lot of people. Yeah, I know that they there have been some studies that link or correlate intelligence to depression. <laughs> and I think part of that is, you know, if you just spend a little bit of time looking at and thinking about the world, it can definitely be overwhelming just the amount of suffering that exists out there. What I'm hearing you say is that I am very smart. Yeah, I'm super optimistic. So I don't know what that means. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, we talk about balancing out expressing our altruism effectively with a more traditional approach and finding a combination of the two that works. But I think it's important to note that in a lot of ways, it is a zero-sum game with finite money, time, or compassion to give, a donation that manifests itself in one way cannot also at the same time be given in the other way as well. I guess I've taken a little bit of umbrage at the idea of the type of donation that I personally do, and I see a lot of people in my community do, as being non-effective quote-unquote altruism, just because it happens to be for things that might already have a lot of attention and be in our immediate visual ability to perceive the issue. So when I hear that 
there are all of these different causes that I probably should be donating to instead. And instead of, you know, buying nail polish, but also instead of what I'm doing currently with my donations, I'm wondering if that means that there is somehow less moral value to my donations to Planned Parenthood, an issue that I feel very personally tied to. And also I do think is effective, even though it is a more prominent issue that is receiving a lot of attention. It's receiving a lot of attention because it is a cause that deserves it. I think there's something to be said for the idea of spreading effort and spreading um, intention around, because a world in which everyone donates a million dollars for mosquito nets is a world with way too many mosquito nets and way not enough of anything else. The best approach that I can think of is to take something that you're passionate about and to find the most effective way to make a difference in that space. The passion part, yeah, it's a little bit of a crutch, but it ultimately drives you towards investing in and caring about something. And that's something that's going to prevent compassion fatigue. And that's something that's going to help you donate in the long term and not just be an effective altruist for a week. The argument that an effective altruist would make would be, well, all of that's just an excuse. You should do the the difficult thing and you should do what you need to do no matter what. And that's just not realistically how most people are motivated. So I think it's fair to play into that motivation a little bit and find something that you're interested in and, and try to make a difference in that space. Yeah, I guess it's asking me to make a choice about who who do I leave behind? <laughs> not not just who I favor with my donations, but who I leave to fend for themselves. Well, and I think they would suggest that well, who who is left furthest behind currently? I mean, we could talk about what's happening with reproductive rights in the United States. I don't want to get into that conversation right now, but I would feel like I'm abandoning a lot of people, not just in my community, but in communities around the country if I were to redirect my donations elsewhere. And I I don't think that effective altruism is necessarily making a statement on which is worse or which is not. I think it's just asking you to do that work. If at the end of your examination or the end of your research, you decide that the place where people need it the most are women in Portland, then that's the legitimate, that's the decision you should make. That's where you should donate your money to. Um, But after a objective examination of the issues, if if you've identified that it is another group of people or another demographic elsewhere that are being left behind the furthest, then it would suggest you should donate there instead. I think most effective altruists would probably be skeptical that women in Portland were really the demographic most in need of help. And that's where I part ways with them a little bit, because I think like Kelly, that the value of charity as a way to support community and to help people out who you have some kind of relationship with, some kind of obligation towards. Um, I think that's a that's a valuable one as well. I try to split my giving between different routes, between supporting my community. Um, I like to support Lambda Legal, which is a, a LGBTQ law firm that is trying, for example, the, the childcare cases in Texas with removing trans children from their parents. Um, but I also like to give to give directly because it provides the greatest amount of money to people who are directly in need. So I think there's space for both of those things. And most people can afford to give more than they are. And while I think the strict, uh, the strictly rational interpretation would be to say that you should give to only the people who need it the most, I think there's a lot of wiggle room around that to do good. The question that this begs is, what would be the most quote unquote, effective cause or the most effective charity, right? Who has the best 
cost to impact ratio. And there's actually websites. The one that might be cited the most um, dedicated to this is givewell.com, where their identified mission statement is, quote, we search for the charities that save or improve lives the most per dollar, end quote. And so according to them, the most effective charities, Emily, I know you already referenced it, but the top two charities on this website both deal with malaria prevention. Number one is medicine, and number two is providing nets to avoid malaria. Ironically, number four is also a program that provides cash incentives for routine childhood vaccinations. So obviously, this website is a liberal scam. It's certainly true that malaria prevention and mosquito nets are one of the most effective ways of preventing death or serious illness and and disablement from malaria infections in Africa, especially sub-Saharan Africa, and vaccination and preventing of contagious disease. The thing is, there's only so many people who need quinine or mosquito nets. And you shouldn't give Warren Buffett's $80 billion fortune entirely for malaria prevention because then you'd have a whole bunch of mosquito nets and a whole lack of anything else, like I said before. There's a point of diminishing returns at which you have to start allocating money to somewhat less effective charities. And that's where I think a site like GiveWell can be really helpful because it can help you to identify the most effective way to make an impact on a particular problem and hopefully to spread out some of the attention between different ways of making an impact on different problems. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think this brings us to some of the limitations of effective altruism. It is very statistically based. It's very, as you said earlier, Emily, it, it's based in this idea of rationalism. And when we're talking about empathy and human suffering, it's not always rational. And so some of the limitations here, it's hard to measure how effective a a broad charity might be. So something like the Red Cross that takes on multiple different projects, how efficient are they as opposed to a charity that just does one thing? It's very easy to measure the impact that they have. I think that's always a risk with any kind of metric. When you make one metric the uh, hallmark of success or failure, uh, then it can become very tempting to focus only on the things that perform well according to that metric. But reality is a little bit squishier than that and a little bit fuzzier than that. I wouldn't say that the problem is so much that empathy isn't rational as that rational assessment can only get you so far in evaluating a big complex problem with lots of causes and lots of symptoms. Really what you need is a way to coordinate different kinds of giving and coordinate different kinds of support to try to make a a meaningful difference in multiple problems at once. And that's one of the things that I think that the effective altruism community has done really well. They've recruited people, they've proselytized to people about ways that they can give more effectively. They've brought a lot of attention to things like I was talking before about unconstrained donations versus targeted donations um, and to the ineffectiveness of certain traditional charities um, that should probably be put in the dustbin of history. So I think there's a, that, that emphasis on bringing the tools of rationality to our giving can be very helpful as long as we're not overestimating how objective and how clever we can be about these things. The other thing here that can be difficult is nonprofits or organizations that focus on advocacy work. Obviously, this is super important inside of any democratic system, but how do we measure advocacy? Take the ACLU, for example, that goes and engages in court battles or argues in front of the Supreme Court or advocates for 
disenfranchised groups within our country for lawmakers or policymakers? How do we measure what kind of progress they're making? How good of a job they're doing? How efficient is their altruism? I think the important thing here is not only acknowledging that some things we just can't measure, but that it's kind of unimportant to have a measurable result for these sorts of things, because that obfuscates the actual issue. Like how effective are they as an organization is something that we can feel and observe and see trends that give us the indication of what they're actually doing. So in the instance of the ACLU, we know that they're effective when we don't experience the erosion of our rights, or when there are cases that are being won that help protect or advance our rights. Those things aren't measurable, but they are observable, and they do give us an overall improvement or maintenance of our quality of life. And and I'm okay that it's not measurable. But do you think something that's so intangible to the point that we can't look at it and say, this many humans were helped or this many cases were prevented would fall secondary in terms of what we should prioritize giving our money or giving our time to, to something that we could point to directly? Like this many people have been provided insulin and therefore, you know, we've saved this many lives of diabetics who had they not been given this otherwise wouldn't have survived. Isn't that because it's measurable? It's just cleaner. Like, isn't that something we should be prioritizing? I think it's important. And I do think that the measurability of something like that makes sense. What I'm saying is that just because a cause can't be measured does not mean that it should be deprioritized because that opens the door for it to fall off of the list entirely. It should be held in balance with the things that are measurable. We need civil liberties as much as we need people to get insulin. I think that the the example of advocacy organizations is a thornier one for effective altruism. I brought up Lambda Legal before, which, like I said, is a LGBTQ legal group that represents LGBTQ plaintiffs in civil rights cases. And what is the quantifiable effectiveness of someone who's advocating for a case in front of a court? They either win or they don't. And there's not that many examples of wins or losses. So it's really hard to draw conclusions about how effective they are with their legal advocacy work. So the idea, you run into the problem where things that can be measured, things that are easier to evaluate, become seem more desirable because they can be measured, even if there does need to be money spent on things like legal advocacy or advocating for civil rights or advocating for uh, you know lack of press censorship, things like that. In the same community that you bring up, speaking of civil rights, how do we measure the amount of money that was put into lobbying for something like the ability for um, LGBTQ people to get married? They now have a right they didn't have before. Money was spent on acquiring that right. How many dollars did it cost for how much happiness? Well, and it was impossible to know in advance whether or not that was going to succeed. So was, would the argument then be that the human rights campaign was... Uh, you know, 0% effective right up until the moment that we got Obergefell v. Hodges was ruled, and then it was 100% effective. It just stops really making sense uh, at that point. Effective altruists like to deride about traditional charity. But I think there are some problems 
especially problems that aren't binary like that, that aren't about provision of a good or service, um, that, uh, that effective altruism isn't very well equipped to handle. Along those same lines, even something like cancer research, that can certainly be measured, the amount of deaths prevented once the cure has been discovered or once the research has been completed. But like you're saying, if we haven't actually discovered the cure yet, how many millions of dollars will we put into it before we decide 0%? Nothing has come out of it yet. So this isn't something that we should donate to anymore. I think part of it is also we have to do what feels right too, and not just adhere ourselves to the statistics, because even if cancer research doesn't seem like it's getting anywhere, we would feel bad if we weren't putting money and effort towards it. We would know that that was a deficiency of some sort of obligation to healthcare, even if we're not successful with it. I think there's a lot of initiatives like that that aren't getting anywhere. They don't seem to be making any tangible improvements in a lot of cases. But if we abandon them, then that's a moral failing. And you can't quantify that with statistics. I think, though, it it also brings up a criticism of effective altruism as being short-sighted, saying that we haven't found the cure for cancer yet, or saying that we just don't believe that medical science is in a point where it will come about within we, we predict the next five or 10 years is problematic, especially when we look to other large scale issues like climate change, for example. How does effective altruism answer the question of, do we put money into research to prevent the effects of climate change? which could literally be a species-threatening issue versus helping the poor now that are suffering in the short term. There are so many different ways that that can be looked at as being, I guess, under the framework of effective altruism, depending on which priority you have. Because a lot of the things to help people who are poor now are helping them mitigate the effects of climate change in a lot of cases, like severe drought, climate refugees, things along those lines. Those are people who need help now, but effectively handling climate change will have untold benefits for those people in perpetuity if they no longer feel adverse effects. So that isn't just a, what are we doing with our dollars right now conversation? It's also, what are we doing with our dollars now that affect the next 50 to 100 years? I think the challenge, so Emily has mentioned a couple of times, hey, it's possible to balance these things out. It's possible to give directed efficient dollars to one charity and then give more broadly usable, you know, long-term looking dollars to a different charity. But my concern would be somebody that takes on this effective altruist label wholeheartedly and says, I will use every dollar I have as efficiently as possible now puts on a set of blinders to things like climate change, to things like advocacy, because it's impossible to measure because it can't be proven to be efficient. And are are they just digging a hole where now, you know, let's say everybody on the planet were to become effective altruists. Are we shooting ourselves in the foot? I don't think we really run a risk of everyone on the planet becoming effective altruists. I think the, the movement is serving us well as a kind of something that appeals to a segment of people that weren't typically reached by traditional charitable appeals and who are focusing disproportionately on problems that we do need to focus on. Yeah, I, I think I think that the, the incentives and motivation for traditional charity and giving to advocacy groups and giving to our friends and family, giving to our local community are plenty. 
I don't think that we're running the risk of being overrun anytime soon by stats nerds who want to buy mosquito nets. The more we talk about the calculus, the more we talk about the mindset of people who have adopted a pure, effective altruism mindset, the more it sounds like my MBA program, the more it sounds like my business strategy class in particular that I'm in right now, where it's all about finding the most affordable way to get the most bottom line, essential profit out of things. And at the expense of anything else, the most immediate concern is the current financial situation that you're in. So forsaking the long-term prospects of a specific initiative, because it matters what you end on this year with your positive cash flow. That, that sounds a lot like effective altruism. We need to be able to quantify it. We need to be able to quantify it now. <laughs> then, uh, I don't know, it sounds a little capitalist, at least in, in maybe how it was born and bred, even if the intentions are to help people without expecting anything in return. But I think the defense of it would be the profit margin here is saving lives or improving the quality of lives of people around the world. If you are going to spend X amount of dollars, there are real people out there who are begging for those dollars. And for us to sit in our you know ivory towers in the West and say, oh, but I like how it feels to give the money to this person because they're part of our community or because I identify with them, whatever. I want to look long-term. That's easy for us to say. But you know what you've labeled profit, I think an effective altruist would label a person, 900 people that's somewhere else that needs that money to either survive or, or significantly improve their quality of life. Yes, I agree that there are people at the core of this, but it still seems very reductive to look at sheer numbers and looking at things in more of a short-term analysis and asking people to maybe turn their back on their communities because their communities are fine and maybe not great, but fine. And looking outward, I don't know that it really engages with the emotional core of why people give. I think you can also look at it as a necessary corrective to the traditional way of doing business, even if it's not something we should embrace wholeheartedly. Because I agree that we shouldn't myopically focus on stuff that we could quantify. We shouldn't treat it purely as a cost-benefit analysis, as I stated. But imagine you are on your first day as an accountant, and you join a mom-and-pop grocery store, and you ask to see their books, and they're like, what's that? They haven't evaluated what people want to buy. They don't know. Like, so if you walk into this kind of environment where no one is doing anything to try to do a good job, a better job than they, they were before, it can be very helpful to apply some of those lenses, even if over application of them might be destructive in the end. So I think I have a lot of sympathy for that idea that we should be evaluating how effective um, the Make-A-Wish Foundation is as a way of spending dollars. We should be evaluating the Ronald McDonald House. Surprisingly effective, actually. So at this point in the episode, we have effective altruists telling us, if you have money to spend, you should be buying mosquito nets in sub-Saharan Africa. And you have <laughs> the three of us saying, but it's hard to do that when I come across a GoFundMe page for my friend's cat. And um, I think it's important here to keep that in mind as we move to the second half of the episode, where we point to effective altruism's other principle, besides asking people to give more efficiently, just trying to get people to give more, period. And the question is, by maybe ignoring 
some of the just natural motivations that we have or urges that we have, does effective altruism maximize or minimize the amount of good that can be done? I don't think that. So I, I hinted before that this seems to be reaching a group of people who weren't giving as much to traditional charities. And I think that the people that this motivates are people who find it motivating. And the people who find it motivating weren't necessarily being moved by, you know, the World Wildlife Fund's Cute Pandas campaign. Um, and I don't know that it necessarily needs to come into conflict with appeals to by traditional charities to empathy or to serving your community and so on and so forth. The fact that it's appealing to nerds and tech bros and people who really enjoy financial quantification to me speaks to the fact that it's expanding charitable giving in a way that can be a positive thing um, and doing so to, to the benefit of highly effective charities. And I think that's a good thing. Is there a possibility though that the emphasis on charitable giving limits how much motivation people have to actually perform charitable acts? There's an interesting sort of subsect of effective altruism that would be called, you know, quote, earning to give that would actually suggest that charitable acts are not ideal. So for example, if you are a lawyer that earns whatever, 150 bucks an hour, and you want to go and, and build homes for the homeless, you're actually not doing anybody any good. You'd be better off working as a lawyer, taking the money that you make, donating that, earning to give, donating that to people that actually know how to build homes, and having them go out and volunteer to build, to build the homes instead of you doing it yourself. This isn't doing much to diminish my impression that there's a capitalist basis for this. I think the the stereotypical example here would be the church group or the people that just graduated from college flying off to some developing country to go on their mission trip for a week and spending thousands of dollars on their plane, spending thousands of dollars on their hotel, <laughs> trying to build something or trying to help in a medical clinic, really accomplishing nothing and having spent $5,000, $10,000 doing it. Coming back, of course, posting on their Instagram the whole way and feeling as though they're the best person on the planet when they could have taken all of that money and given it to somebody that's useful and accomplished so much more than they actually did. Well, that assumes a couple of things. One, it assumes that the alternative to going on those sorts of trips is actually donation when the alternative to going on those trips is probably just to go on a vacation that isn't like full of poverty porn. But also, it seems like a lot of the things that we're talking about with the earning to give framework is give money to mitigate some of the effects of a capitalist system, which prioritizes earning above all else. I think the most extreme example, of what you're talking about might be the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, two of the richest people on the planet that are most certainly propagating a capitalist system, but also two of the people that have donated more money than anyone else to help causes like this in an effective manner to the tune of $30 billion, something in there. That's interesting to your point, Kelly, of are they doing more good or more harm by propping up a system, but then also doing a lot to address the issues that that system either does or does not directly cause? I would say in response to that, that people don't get to choose how systems work. And 
ultimately, if my goal is to decide for myself how I'm going to spend my money and how I'm going to spend my time, I could say I wish capitalism didn't exist, but it would still exist. And if I'm going to have to earn money and I'm going to have to survive in a capitalist system, I have to ask the question, how can I do the greatest good for the greatest number of people? And I think at that point, it's reasonable to say I should give my excess wealth to people who need it because I'm not going to be able to change capitalism on my own. It's interesting when we talk about profit under this episode of effective altruism, because to break this down, we haven't defined it yet. Altruism itself is the belief in or practice of disinterested and selfless. Those two words are important. Disinterested and selfless concern for the well-being of others. And so traditional altruism, there's a debate asking whether or not it's even possible to be purely altruistic. And Emily, you mentioned a, a core of people who effective altruism appeals to that traditional altruism seems to have missed. The vast majority of people who donate, whether it's money or time, they do it in the form of things like GoFundMe campaigns for people that they know. Uh, they get paid to do nonprofit work. It's through religious organizations that has a self-interest. It's in educational institutions that have self-interest. Or at, at the very least, that feel-good factor, I'm donating money to make myself feel as though I'm a better person. So I guess I'm curious, do, do you both think that it's possible to be purely altruistic? And if the answer is no, does effective altruism ignore that in order to get people, most people, to do something for others, there has to be some sort of motivation? And oftentimes that doesn't sync up with what the most efficient cause is. I think there are instances that could be considered purely altruistic, such as the lizard brain response that people experience when there is a case of immediate harm and say somebody falls on the subway tracks and somebody jumps down behind them to try to rescue them. And oftentimes those people are asked, why did you do it? And they say that they can't describe why they just, they just did it. They didn't really think about it at all. However, those are exceptionally rare circumstances and probably only a handful happen every year. So looking at what actually happens with people's motivations and when they choose to act is more complicated than that and often does take a degree of actually thinking and interrogating their motivations, their emotional connection to the issues, all of those things. So there is a very small window of what would be quote unquote pure altruism. But the rest of it probably does have a sense of identity or cultural pressure to make a certain outcome happen. All right. And how often do you think that the kind of cultural or earlier we talked about relational or reciprocal obligations, those things aren't going to fall in line with what these effective altruism websites have identified as the three most needed causes? And so if effective altruism is telling you, hey, if you're going to donate, you need to donate to malaria, you need to donate to vaccination efforts, et cetera, does that not just turn some people off to where they say, all right, well, if you don't want my money for these other things, don't take it. I'm just not going to donate at all. I could see that being maybe alienating to some people to the point where they wouldn't participate altogether if the overall effective altruism community did not agree with their priorities. However, I think what's most likely is that people will still donate to the things that they personally care about because there are things that they get out of it that are 
the emotional factor, the sense of obligation, the feeling like they're a bad person if they don't do it, those sorts of things. So more often than not, I think they will just donate to the things that are not considered as effective as this particular school of thought would identify. Right. And if the vast majority of people fall into that category where they are not purely altruistic, they need to have some sort of connection, then maybe traditional altruism, even if it utilizes those resources less efficiently, ends up doing a lot more good in the world just because it recruits more people to be involved in the system. I don't think this is an issue for effective altruism so much as it is an issue for traditional altruism, because the vast majority of effective altruists are people who, at least in some peripheral way, are exposed to the rationalist community. They're people who identify as consequentialists. They only care about the outcomes, not about the motivations. So is pure altruism possible or not? I think most effective altruists would say, who cares? Let's do the greatest good we can for the greatest number, regardless of how we get to that point. Do the greatest good for the greatest number, regardless of how we get to that point, I think begs the question, if I'm going to be moral in the eyes of an effective altruist, exactly how much of myself, money or time, do I have to give? Is there a limit to where I can say, all right, I've sacrificed enough of my own comforts that I can now rest assured that I have lived a good and moral life and alleviated suffering as best I can in the world. Yeah, that reminds me of when I first was told of the entire philosophy that kind of brought forth this conversation and the philosophy of Peter Singer. I immediately rejected it in my mind because it seemed so unreasonable. It, it made me feel bad that I had joy that I had anything I enjoyed in my life, even simple pleasures like taking a walk in my neighborhood. Well, I bought shoes that were probably manufactured in countries where labor is exploited. Like there's no way for me to enjoy my life that doesn't actively harm other people. So how do I atone for that? What, how far do I have to give up my creature comforts and anything I enjoy in order to balance everything and then to do good for others, it seemed like an impossible ask. Well, certainly. So for, for effective altruists, I think they, they do recognize that there has to be a ceiling somewhere. And this one's a bit extreme. So we can argue about whether or not the ceiling should be lower than this. But even an effective altruist identifies the point of, quote, marginal utility and that would be where you've given so much of yourself that you've lowered yourself to the level of the person that you're helping, or potentially you've put yourself at harm equivalent to the scenario that you're alleviating, creating circumstances for yourself that now replicate the things that you're trying to eradicate in the world certainly doesn't seem productive. No, it doesn't. I am never going to do that. I'll just let you know that right now. But so maybe more realistic. There was a story of this guy. I don't know his name. I don't know where he's from, but it was interesting to me. And he basically thought that, well, I just graduated school. And when I was living as a graduate student, I, I certainly wasn't living in luxury. I have a small, crappy apartment. You know, I eat ramen most nights. Uh, I, I don't have a lot of money to go out. Um, I don't spend money on clothes. And so it's not elegant, but 
it's certainly comfortable compared to the situations in which people around the world live in. So what if I committed to just living like a grad student the rest of my life and any money that I make over the amount that I need to sustain that lifestyle, I'll donate. That's admirable. And that's definitely something that someone can choose for themselves. And I don't really have a problem with it. It doesn't sound like he's putting himself into you know jeopardy of illness or pain or homelessness or anything like that. A whole lot of sodium though, with all that cup of noodle. It, well, and you know, he's, pro- he's probably got access to healthcare. Hopefully. I don't think that that's what we need to ask of people in order to take care of a lot of these issues. For me, the, one of the most liberating things about the consequentialist view that under underpins effective altruism is that it tries to move away from the concept of being a good or a bad person. You're not ethical only if you live up to the most possible ethical standards. No one is ethical or not ethical. We just have a bunch of actions that we take and we try to make them as good as possible. So the question isn't how do I become a good person? It's how do I become a better person? And that's true even in vegetarianism for me. When people say, oh, I don't know if I could give up meat altogether, I say, well, have you heard of Meatless Mondays? I don't try to advocate for being a perfect vegan now, today, and anything less is unacceptable. I try to advocate for making small positive changes because a positive change is still better than no change at all. And most effective altruists that I know would agree with that. Um, They would hold up themselves up to the highest standard. But persuasion is a tricky thing. And if you can only get everyone else to make one small positive change, like donating $10 a month, then donating $10 a month is better than nothing. And I find that to be very liberating because it says you don't have to be able to do everything right now. You have to be realistic and accomplish what you can with what you have. It sounds like at the coming towards the end of this episode that the the system that we are all leaning towards is a system that incorporates the principles of effective altruism into pre-existing structures of giving. And that's sort of the ideal scenario. But because it's a debate podcast, I don't want to let either of you off too easily. So I guess my final question would be, if you had to choose between a system of traditional altruism, where you give to causes that you feel connected to for whatever reason, Versus effective altruism, where you identify the cause where your money or time can do the most good, which would you choose? I hate this question because it is such a false binary, but I would still have to choose effective altruism. I feel like the decisions I've been making with my charitable giving have been, in some cases, incidentally effective altruism in the sense that I am not looking at things that specifically affect people in my life that I care about necessarily. Like, yeah, I give to Planned Parenthood and I have a uterus. So there's like that emotional connection to things. But I also give like to the Southern Poverty Law Center because that's something that does not really uh, affect my life whatsoever. But I think that that is an effective use of my money is to help people in the United States who are experiencing racial discrimination on like a legal level. So I'd say that It's just going to be a really nice outcome if it happens to be that the things that you care about to give to also happen to be like really effective means of giving your money. But the expectation shouldn't be doing one at the expense of the other, I guess. So traditional altruism, I would say. Traditional altruism and hope that it happens to be effective. I guess so. I would feel bad if my money was not serving a purpose. You know, if I was just giving 
something to someone because it made me feel better. That wouldn't be good enough, but it would be hard for me to give to causes that I did not feel emotionally called to give to. See, I think that that I understand it's a false dichotomy, but I think that often, you know, it's interesting to ask that question to really come to a conclusion on a debate podcast over which one has more value than the other. But realistically, I think that what Emily, your sentiments have seemed to be throughout the entire episode, the combination of two is probably the way to go. And, And that is a plug for effective altruism because traditional altruism is happening with or without education on this idea of effectiveness. And as the effective altruist movement grows, I think that it's starting to supplement that traditional altruism more and more. And potentially we're seeing better results overall across the world because of it. Thank you again, Emily, so much for joining us today. Your input has been really illuminating on the subject, and we've really loved to hear all of your thoughts on this very complicated issue. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to talk to you both. Obviously, there are many different ways in which people give their time and money and many different motivations behind giving time and money. So we would really love to hear from all of our listeners about how they make those decisions and where they actually decide to give their their efforts. And also for our listeners, I'm curious if they feel they would be more incentivized to donate under a traditionally altruistic system or an effectively altruistic system. So if you have answers to Kelly's questions or my question, feel free to reach out to us at IndubitablyPod on Twitter and Facebook or IndubitablyPodcast at gmail.com and let us know the answers along with any questions, criticisms, concerns, life advice, episode suggestions, etc. that you might have. I feel like the last couple of episodes we've ended with quotes that were relevant to the episode information. We should just make that our thing. Yeah. It's a great way to come up with something that we don't actually have to come up with because somebody else already came up with it. (laughs) We'll rely on people smarter than ourselves to make us look good. Well, I've got one for today, which I think is very apt because it comes from Peter Singer. Living a minimally acceptable ethical life involves using a substantial part of our spare resources to make the world a better place. Living a fully ethical life involves doing the most good we can.